If you brought your Bibles, uh, we're going to start a new teaching series today, uh, looking at uh, Paul's letter to Corinth. And so we're, uh, this series is all about 1 Corinthians. And so if you brought your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Acts 18, of course, right? That's the place we should start. We should start in Acts 18. I had somebody stop me this morning and she, uh, they said, do you have, ever have anyone ask questions during your teaching? I said, no, mostly sleep and heckle, not, not really questions. Um, and she said, I have questions about Corinthians. And I said, good. I have more questions. We're, we're going to get to all of those. Uh, well, if you brought your Bibles, turn to Acts 18, and let's start there. We're just going to walk through Acts 18, and uh, it's going to be a, a great introduction to us. In Acts 18, verse 1, it says, Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. What's happening in Acts is the Holy Spirit is landed, and the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ is catching fire. It's exploding and expanding all over the ancient Near East, to Iconium, to cities like Antioch, Philippi, Ephesus, Athens, Murfreesboro, Huntsville, Goodlettsville, uh, Antioch, it's, yeah, mm, Antioch, Columbia, Spring Hill, and of course, Corinth. Go ahead and put that map up there, Zach. Everybody know where Corinth is? This is a real place. This is a real map. This is a map of Greece. You see Athens up there uh, next to the Aegean. Across the Aegean is Turkey. If you go to the other way, it's not far away from Italy, the boot. You know where I'm talking about. Athens was, uh, or or Corinth, was this city um, built for greatness. Um, It was a, a great trading and commercial center. Um, it was a strategic city. Uh, go ahead and show that next picture. All right, so here's what Athens looks like today. If you see, Athens is on this tiny isthmus of land. Anybody ever been to Athens or anyone ever been to Corinth? Either one. No, we should get out more. Awesome. <laughs> Travel, enjoy the world. In this picture of Corinth, what you see is that Corinth sits on this tiny isthmus of land. It's only four miles separating two huge bodies of water, right? And it makes it, uh, uh, Corinth, incredibly strategic. So all north-south trade went through Corinth, and all east-west trade went through Corinth. And Corinth became really popular because you could park your boat on one shore, unload all the cargo, carry it four miles, put it on another boat on the other shore. Now that four-mile trip would save you 200 miles sailing around one of the the worst capes in the Mediterranean, Cape Matapan. And it said if you ever tried to sail around Cape Matapan, if you didn't go across Corinth, if you didn't connect here, if you tried to sail around, it said the saying was make sure your will is in order. So it's much better to go through Corinth. And it made Corinth this incredibly strategic place. Uh, it was called the Bridge of Greece, the marketplace of Greece. And today I put this picture up um, because it's still so strategic. They actually dug a canal at Corinth. And this is the canal that connects the two huge bodies of water. The canal cuts right through the center of Corinth. Those walls are over 100 feet high. Pretty amazing, right? Uh, I saw a video of a stand-up paddleboard race through the, through the canal. So I put that in my budget for next year. Go. I'm going. That's going to happen. Go ahead and show that next picture. 
So here's some more pictures of ancient Corinth. Um, you see the ruins that are there. When you're looking at those, I want, I want to ask you a question. Uh, what's the worst city you can think of? What's the worst city you can think of? Everybody's su- super shy all of a sudden. Detroit. I always, in my teaching, I always write Tuscaloosa because I'm an Auburn fan. And so, but it hadn't, we haven't even started yet. In terms of greed or sin or immorality, um, what, do you, what, what city does that conjure up in your head? Anything? Vegas. That's right. That's right. I have Vegas too, and, but I also put, a, I, I put a, a New Orleans, Nolens. You guys been to New Orleans? Now, I got to qualify this because maybe some of you are already getting, hey, because I love, I love like Cajun food and, and I love, there's some great parks and museums in New Orleans, but there's a whole other part of New Orleans and you know what I'm talking about, don't you? So um, one time in college, this is a horrible way to get any story, uh, I went with my future, who would be my future wife, and we went to Mardi Gras in Montgomery, Alabama, which is about two hours away. And what, when you go to Mardi Gras in Montgomery, it's family Mardi Gras, right? It's, they throw moon pies, and everyone's happy, and you see the floats and the parades and all the colors and lights and all that. And we thought, man, that was super nice. We should go check out Mardi Gras in New Orleans, too. And we did. And we went to this part of New Orleans, the one that you're all thinking of. I'm still praying, asking for repentance for that trip. Uh, It opened up my eyes to a lot of things, (laughs) frankly. So a lot of repentance and confession happening here. Um, When you think of Corinth, I want you to think about the worst parts of New York, L.A., Vegas, and, and New Orleans combined. Uh, it was the original sin city. Some even, like, it had a reputation as the worst city of all. Think about this. It was a major shipping hub, but it was also a major cultural hub. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and people were actually going back and forth through Corinth all the time. It was filled with sailors, right? Yeah, some of you are already picking up on some of this. It was a city with a reputation, especially for prostitution. So up here on this mountaintop in one of those pictures you can see, see that uh, the, the remnants of a temple that was up there at one point in time in Corinth's history, that was the temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of sex. That's right. And supposedly, and historians have documented this, Aphrodite's temple had a thousand priestesses that worked in this temple above the sailor town below. And at night, the priestesses would come down into the city and practice their religion. Okay, are you with me? This was Corinth. In one of the museums in Corinth today, you can go and uh, you can look in the museum and and they have all of these clay votives, these, these clay jars, these clay figurines, and this is going to get a little bit explicit. They're shaped in the form of male anatomy, okay? 
Because what you would do is you would take this, you would make this clay votive, and you would go and offer it to the gods to heal that part of your body. Because Corinth was ravaged by venereal disease, right? Are you getting a picture of what Corinth was like? Just like Disney World, right? Let's take the kids. To be called a Corinthian, like even this, the language, like even the name Corinthian, to be called a Corinthian was synonymous with debauchery. Uh, there was a Greek playwright that uh, when he would ever, whenever he would put a Corinthian in his play, the Corinthian was always drunk on stage. Always. Because that's what it was thought of. It was known to be like, like it was just a synonymous with debauchery and drunkenness. And Paul looks at Corinth and says, man, this is a great place to plant a church. <laughs> Look what he says in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, talking about Corinth. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will never inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in, like, here's the menu of everything Corinth has to offer. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or, or abusive or cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, some of you were once like that. All right, so now, remember, I just painted this incredibly graphic picture of the people of Corinth. Now, take all those people and put them in church next to each other. Says, Some of you were once like that. But he's got an important message for them. But, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You are made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Like, I love this, that, that Paul looks at this city and says, you know, this is an amazing place for the Spirit of God to come and land and be active. Let's go back to Acts. In Acts, verse one, uh, in Acts 18, verse 1, you see that Paul goes to Corinth. In, while he's in Corinth, he, he meets all kinds of people. And two people he, meet are, he, he meets are called uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Have you ever heard these names? A husband and wife couple. They've been kicked out of Rome, and now here they are. They're in Corinth along with Paul. Paul calls them co-workers in the ministry of Christ. Uh, it's really amazing because in Scripture, a lot of times Priscilla's name, that's the wife. Um, it's pretty cool their name rhymes, too. Like, always marry somebody whose name rhymes with your name. That seems pretty interesting and fun, easy to remember. But Priscilla's name in Scripture is mentioned first a lot. And, and like, we don't really know why, but, but we think maybe that's because of her strong role in the faith. Paul lives with this couple and, and calls them co-workers in the ministry of Christ in Corinth. They, they live and work together. Priscilla and Aquila will, will straighten out Apollos later. You'll hear more about him soon. But they're examples of early Christians who in the course of their daily work were bold and bearing witness to Christ and active in ministering to his people. If we go a little bit further in Acts 18, if you get to verses 4 and 5, it, you find that each Sabbath, Paul is at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. And after Silas and Timothy come, he, he's able to even spend more time preaching the word. And he testified to the Jews that Jesus was 
the Messiah. You have any Jewish friends? What's your message to them? Imagine like how like, like bold Paul is in this. And of course, what happens in verse 6, if you read a little bit further, is you see that they opposed and insulted him. Not much later in Acts 18, you see that uh, Paul, by the Jewish high council, is taken to court. They try to have him thrown in jail, and their plan backfires on them. You can read about it in verses 12 through 17. And Paul is trying to take this message that Jesus is the Messiah. He's trying to take this message and break it into Corinth. And he starts with the Jews. But when the Jews rejected, he says, your blood's on your own heads and I'm innocent from now on. He says, I will go preach to the Gentiles. Look what it says in uh, the next verse. It says, he left and went to the home of Titus Justus, a Gentile who worshiped God. And look what it says, lived next door to the synagogue. So literally, Paul is going to the synagogue all the time. He's going to the Jewish center, preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. And they run him out. And Paul literally just goes next door to a Gentile. Like, like do you see how big a deal this is? He has this whole new mission. If you fast forward a little bit in Acts 18, you see that, man, it wasn't easy. It was difficult. Paul's facing challenge after challenge in Corinth, if you could imagine. And in verse 9 and 10, Paul has a vision. It says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. I know we just did a Daniel series all about dreams and how God kind of breaks through Paul has this vision, and in the vision, the Lord told him, it's red letter if you have that kind of Bible. The vision is, don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. Remember, I am with you, and no one will attack or harm you. For many people in this city belong to me. Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. Speak out. Man, I think there, there are maybe many fantastic times to be silent, right? Husbands, there are many fantastic times to be silent. But when it comes to sharing your faith, like, that's not one of them. His vision is to be vocal, to speak out. Remember, you're not alone. There are people in the city that belong to me. And if you look in verse uh, 11, you see some of the wind that comes out of this. It says that uh, Paul ends up staying there because of this vision. He ends up staying there a year and a half teaching the word of God. Like he's committed to Corinth in a whole new way. Corinth is where he stays uh, uh, longer than any city other than Ephesus. And the result is if you look in verse 8, we call it celebrating the wind. It says that Crispus... The leader of the synagogue, or should say the ex-leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed the Lord. Remember that place that Paul got kicked out of? The leader of the synagogue came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, along with many others in Corinth 
who heard Paul, they became believers and were baptized. I want to fast forward to verse 18. Uh, Paul spends uh, 18 months in Corinth, right, in in the heart of Sin City, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Acts gives us all of 18 verses. I wish we had a little bit more. But in verse 18, kind of at at the end of Paul's time in Corinth, it says Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that and said goodbye to the brothers and sisters. And he went by uh, to nearby Centuria, which is the port of Corinth. And it says that this is just, I mean, it's almost just a side note in the text. It says, then he shaved his head according to Jewish custom, making the end of a vow. And he sets sail. He takes the mission on, and Priscilla and Aquila go with him. Any of you know what that means when it says he shaved his head according to Jewish custom, making the end of a vow? What's that about? I didn't know either. I had to look it up. I I thought, you know, maybe he's like me. He's just, you know. That's not it. In the book of Numbers, um, there is a way of, of... rededicating yourself in Jewish custom there is a way of rededicating yourself to the Lord so you know that the Levites were the temple workers they were the priestly class they were dedicated to working in the temple of God but for the normal Jewish people for the rest of the Jewish tribes if they wanted to dedicate themselves to God again they could take what is called a Nazarite vow you can read about it and I think it's in number 16 Nazarite or, or Nazarene even means, it just means consecrated or, or dedicated to a special purpose. So if a regular Jewish person wanted to dedicate themselves or consecrate themselves to the Lord again, they would, they would take three vows, and usually the Nazarite vow would last about 30 days. Uh, the first part of the vow is that they would not cut their hair. So for 30 days, they would not cut the hair on their head, just like Caden over here. Okay. You just don't cut your hair for 30 days. You don't drink any strong wine, and you keep yourself ritually, ritually pure. So for 30 days, you don't cut your hair, you don't drink any wine, and you keep yourself ritually pure. And at the end of 30 days, you make a special offering to the temple. Uh, I have just a random picture. This is actually a historical picture of what the Nazarite vow looked like. Can you think of anyone in scripture with long hair that was dedicated to God? Yeah, Samson. Uh, there was two ways to do the vow. You could do a temporary vow or you could do a lifelong vow. Samson was a lifelong Nazarite. He had dedicated himself to the service of the Lord. And this Nazarite vow was something that, that they, they, they took incredibly serious. It was a sign of, of complete devotion to God again, to, to his purposes again. It meant that they were holy unto God again. Here's what I think. I think maybe it's time for us to renew our vows. Coming up here pretty soon is uh, National Back to Church Day. You guys know about this? This this is actually, I know there's a day for everything, but there's uh, 
uh, National Back to Church Day. Zach, you can go ahead and put that slide up there. Some studies suggest that, you know, um, that 90% of people started going to church simply because someone else invited them. Some statistics say, I mean, you can argue about them, but some statistics say that 82% of unchurched people would be interested in coming to church if a friend invited them. Yet in the last year, only 2% of church members invited somebody. Don't raise your hands. I think as we begin this study of Corinthians, like Paul going in this incredibly difficult place, lots of opposition. Like I, th- I think we need to hear, like I, I think that vision, remember the vision that Paul has? Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. Remember I am with you. Many people in this city belong to me. I think that vision wasn't just for him. I think that was for us today. I think we need to be reminded of this. Reminded that your voice still matters. And if you've claimed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then it's time for you to find your voice again. Maybe you've been biting your tongue. Maybe you've been afraid. Here's what I'm going to ask of all of you today. I'm going to ask you, like Paul, to renew your vow. I'm going to invite you to take a Nazarite vow. Um, and, and you're thinking, okay, he doesn't want me to cut my hair for 30 days, no wine for 30 days, I'm out. No, 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 I mean, just stay with me. I know some of you. Um, what would it look like? What would it look like for you to rededicate yourself to the purpose of God again? You know, this is kind of a new season, a kind of back-to-school season, kind of lots of new things are starting. What would it look like for you to consecrate yourself again to God? What would it look like for you to speak out? Maybe it's, uh, it would be like following the example of Priscilla and Aquila and opening your home. Maybe it would be like Paul, and when the message got rejected at one place, have any of you been rejected and trying to share the truth of Jesus? Anybody ever invite somebody to church and they didn't come or didn't want to come or weren't interested in hearing it? Maybe, the, maybe renewing your vow would mean just going next door. To continue with the cause of Christ So I invite you over this next season to speak out, to open your homes, to go next door, to renew your vow. And here's why I think our church is so important. Um, I'm going to say this as, as humbly as I possibly can. The spirit of the living God is in this church. And your friends and neighbors and our coworkers need it. 
breaks my heart that there are people in our community that don't have a support system, that don't have the love and encouragement and support that a church offers, that the spirit of the living God through the church can offer. And so I invite you again to consecrate yourself. Man, we celebrate what God is doing. I love that there are people from in every season, from, from, from birth all the way to death, there are people in this church who are in every season of life here to support you and encourage you and to hold you up and to hold you accountable. And it's time for Christians everywhere to speak up. One of the things we ask of every one of you who's a member here at Aspen Grove is twice a year. Twice a year we want someone sitting next to you, in the seat next to you. Right? That you invited, that you included. Because we believe the Spirit of God is in this place. And we know that God has what that person needs. So this morning, just as I send you to a time of communion, if you take this bread and this cup, I invite you to just maybe renew your vow. Maybe your Bible study has been slipping. Maybe your church attendance has been slipping. Maybe you haven't plugged into a discipleship group or, or grown in some way. Maybe it's been a long, long time since you invited someone to church. And I put it on you. This week, here's what I believe. I believe God's going to put somebody in front of you that needs an invitation, and you are the only one who can give it. So don't be afraid. Don't be silent. Remember that the Lord God is with you. I'm going to say a prayer, and then I'm just going to dismiss you to a time of communion. If you're a guest with us, uh, this is just a, a, a sacred space for us. We've got communion tables set around the room. There'll be some instructions on the scene. We just invite you to enjoy this space and to lean in. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for this morning, for the chance to share your word. Father God, revive and renew in us a passion to serve your purpose in this place. And, and for those of us, Father God, that, man, maybe we've been slacking on our jobs a, a little bit. Let us renew our vow. Let us renew our dedication to you. Let us find again our purpose in serving your kingdom. Help us to realize that our voice matters and is needed and is important. And help us to speak out. Help us to open our home. Help us to, to go to our neighbors and invite them. Not because we think we're so great or we've got all this perfect stuff, but Father God, because we think your, your kingdom is great because what you offer is what the world needs. And so Father God, as we take this, this bread and this cup that's symbols of your son, of his death, his burial and resurrection, Father God, let us take it with, with the renewed vow and renewed proclamation to proclaim to the world that Jesus is the Messiah. We love you, Father. In your son Jesus' name, everyone together says, amen. I invite you to enjoy time of communion together.